As we noted last week, as we began our study in 2 Thessalonians, the young church in Thessalonica was a good church, one for which the Apostle Paul could be thankful, one of which he could speak proudly, and one for which he could confidently pray. But it was not a perfect church. No church is. And if you're looking for a perfect church, keep looking. And if you ever think you've found one and join it, let me assure you that it will no longer be perfect. (laughs) But be that as it may, (laughs) the church in Thessalonica wasn't perfect. It was made up of imperfect people, and being a young church, its understanding of theological matters was was limited. You know, Paul had shared the gospel with them, and they embraced it. They understood the need for a Savior, and understood what Christ had done for them. The book of Acts only records that Paul was in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, but most believe he stayed there for several months. And during that time, he had no doubt been able to lay a solid foundation upon which the church could build. But the scriptures hadn't yet been compiled. And as a result, the the understanding they had of God's plan for the church, for their lives, and for the future was incomplete. In the church's infancy, before they had the written Word of God, gifts were given through the laying on of the apostles' hands to selected individuals in each church to assist them in knowing God's will. But even spiritual gifts that come directly from the apostles themselves can be misused and misunderstood by people who are less than perfect. And that's why Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to assist them and to see how they were doing and why he wrote the letters we have that were addressed to them. Paul was pleased by much of what he heard. He was thankful to hear how their faith was growing and how their love for one another was increasing. But he was very concerned about something that was causing confusion in the church. Something that was, in fact, leading some to live unproductive, undisciplined lives. There had arisen in the church confusion about the second coming of Christ. Something that I'm certain you realize still causes confusion in the church today. Like us, the Thessalonians had heard some things about the second coming that disturbed them. And they may have even been victims of intentional manipulation and deception. And since they had already forgotten some of what Paul had taught them about the second coming, they were easily influenced. So he addressed their confusion by first making it clear 
that there was no need to be disturbed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, we request, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul had written this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The second coming of Christ is something that should give us great comfort. You know, one day the trumpet will sound, the archangel will shout, and Christ will descend back to earth just as he ascended 40 days after the resurrection. At that time, the dead in Christ will be given new resurrected bodies. Those who are still alive will put on immortality, and together we will meet our Lord in the air. Consistent message of Scripture is that this can happen at any moment. And that we should therefore always be ready. That life is to be lived as if every day could be our last. And that shouldn't frighten us or make us live in dread of the end. It should enable us to live hopeful and expectantly. And when facing hard times, we can hang on because we know we may only have to hang on for a moment longer. And when times are good, we live gratefully, amazed that things will be better still. The second coming of Christ is not something to be feared. It's something to be greatly anticipated. At least... That should be true of those who have entrusted themselves for all eternity to the Son of God. Having said that, however, we must note that there is a great deal of confusion about the second coming. We haven't been told all the details. We know it's coming, but we don't know when. Jesus even said that he didn't know when he was going to return. Only the Father knows. And there's no way, no way we can 
really comprehend how a temporal, material world will be changed into an eternal, spiritual world. Nor how we can be given spiritual bodies that have substance and are identifiable, but are not physical. There are simply some things that we cannot understand, and therefore some things we haven't been told. That doesn't keep some from trying to fill in all the gaps. And when they do, more often than not, they claim their understanding comes from an authority beyond themselves. You know, some in Paul's day were apparently insisting that their teachings on eschatology, the, the last days, were given to them by a spirit. And nothing gives our opinions and conjectures more validity than to insist they were given us by God. Others apparently suggested that they had been told something by the apostle that the others had not. That they had inside information that answered everyone else's unanswered questions. Some even produced authoritative letters that no one else had received, you know, similar to the supposedly suppressed or hidden Gospels that have a way of showing up in bookstores on a regular basis. There's always something out there to disturb us, especially when it comes to the second coming. And that which is intended to comfort us is often turned into a scenario that frightens us. Somehow the Thessalonians had even been led to believe they had missed the second coming. And attempting to explain how that could be possible has led to many complicated theories about multiple resurrections, a secret rapture of the church, and even the reestablishment of Judaism, things that fly directly in the face of what has been clearly taught in Scripture. In our study of Revelation, we noted these things, so there's no need to address them again. But let me assure you that there is no need to be disturbed by fictional accounts about being left behind. Nor should you allow someone to intentionally deceive you into believing something that's not true. Something that was happening in Thessalonica, verses 3 and 4. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 all record Jesus' answer to a couple of questions the disciples asked after leaving the temple. Questions that are key to understanding what to expect before the second coming. Noting how they were admiring the temple, Jesus said, 
Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. They then asked him, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They assumed the destruction of the temple and Christ's coming at the end of the age would take place simultaneously. Jesus made it clear, however, that they were not connected. And that was confirmed when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. and Jesus didn't return. Now, admittedly, sorting out all that he said in response to their questions is difficult. But it is clear that he did give them signs to watch for before the destruction of Jerusalem so they could flee to the mountains. And he made it clear that wars, famines, and earthquakes were not signs that the world was coming to an end, nor of his return. In fact, he said the sign of his coming would be his appearance in the sky, (laughs) coming with power and great glory. That's the sign. He's here. You can hear him coming now. Time that well. Thanks a lot over there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's the way we live expectantly. <laughs> uh, bottom line, the Son of Man is coming at an hour when we don't think he will. He said that. That's why we must always be ready. Now, he did warn that false prophets would arise, showing great signs and wonders in an attempt to mislead the elect, and that some would even suggest that he had already come. Apparently, that had happened in Thessalonica. They had been deceived into thinking they had missed the second coming. Now, I wish Paul had simply said it was evident that Christ hadn't returned because he hadn't appeared in the sky with power and great glory, and that when he returns, every eye will behold him. But that's not what he said. And quite frankly, what he did say has led to considerable confusion, at least For us. Now, again, the consistent teaching of the scriptures is that there will be no warning signs that Jesus is to about to return. He will come when we are not expecting him. So why did Paul, in effect, give the Thessalonians a sign telling them of something that would precede The second coming. Why did he tell them that Jesus wouldn't return until after a period of apostasy? 
A time of widespread falling away from the faith and the appearance of the man of lawlessness. Well, I think it was because he felt they needed a reminder that what they were experiencing, the persecutions and afflictions they were enduring, should have been expected. And they certainly should not have been seen as signs that they had been abandoned or that their faith was misguided. You know, when going through tough times, it's easy to question our faith and to think we've made a mistake, that we believe something that isn't true. And maybe we have. Maybe we have been led to believe something that God didn't say or something he never promised. That happens all the time. But even if what we have believed is true, there are those who will seek to amplify any doubts that might arise. They will then seek to exploit those doubts, claiming to be able to answer them, and in the process of doing so, put themselves into positions of influence and authority. Apparently, some had been telling the Thessalonians that what they had been taught was not true. And that the hard times they were experiencing proved it. That their hopes, based on the second coming of Christ, were misguided. Or that they had somehow missed it all together. Because they were still going through hard times. Whatever the case, they were confused. And they were being deceived by some who said they had the answers to their doubts and questions. So rather than simply assure them that Christ hadn't come, Paul sought to give them a clearer picture of what to expect. Contrary to what they may have thought, things were not going to get better and better until Christ returned. In fact, things were going to get a lot worse. And in spite of the fact that people would continue accepting Christ as a result of the preaching of the gospel, a time of widespread apostasy would precede the second coming. People would abandon their faith in Christ when times got rough and would seek out other answers to life's problems. They would abandon the revealed laws of God and follow after those who promise laws or a lack of laws that might be more beneficial to them. In fact, a man of lawlessness would take center stage. Someone would come on the scene promising to give people what God wouldn't or couldn't. And the masses would begin thinking of him as God, something he would encourage and gladly accept. Now, there is no indication that this man of lawlessness is someone who will appear only once before the second coming. In fact, in 1 John 2.18, we read, Children... 
It is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know, this is the last hour. Now, most agree that the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist refer to the same individual or type of individual. And John makes it clear that there had been many Antichrists by the time he wrote 1 John, some 35 to 40 years after Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. And while some today insist that the man of lawlessness will actually take his seat in a restored temple before the second coming, Hebrews makes it clear that since the sacrifice of Christ, there is no longer a need for an earthly tabernacle. The tabernacle and the temple were essential to the old covenant, but there is no longer a place for an earthly sanctuary in the new covenant, and there never will be. So while Antiochus Epiphanes may very well have fulfilled prophecies about the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel, setting up pagan idols and offering swine in the temple, and Emperor Caligula actually did set a statue of himself in the temple ten years before the writing of Thessalonians, there is no reason to expect a future Antichrist will do something similar in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Through the cleansing of the blood of Christ, God is now able to reside in men's hearts. And there is no longer the need for a temple of stone. I'm convinced Paul was simply trying to get the Thessalonians to understand that the hard times they were going through were not an indication that what they had been taught about the second coming was an error. Things were going to get worse, a lot worse, before they got better. And yes, they, they were living in the last days. So are we. The last days is the last period of history before Christ returns. And he was telling them and us, we should therefore live expectantly, All the time. All the time. But while he could come at any time, apparently the Thessalonians had not yet experienced the widespread apostasy or the appearance of a man of lawlessness that Paul had told them to expect before the return of Christ. He had apparently told them this while with them. And it was imperative that they not forget it. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? He says, I've told you this before. And how I wish we, we had all the details of what he had told them. But we don't. But even though we don't know specifically what he's referring to, I think we can learn from the challenge he set before them. The challenge to remember. 
when we read something new or hear something we haven't heard before, it's easy to forget what we do know. Especially when we're going through a time of questioning and re-examining what we believe. The Thessalonians' beliefs were being challenged by their experiences and by things that were happening in the world. What they had been taught did not seem to answer all the questions that were being raised. And so they were looking for different answers. Now, there's nothing wrong with having our beliefs challenged. We should always be willing to re-examine our assumptions and conclusions because our understanding of Scripture may be flawed and in need of correction. But we must be very careful not to abandon what is clearly taught In God's Word. Doctrines that have passed the test of time. Doctrines that have been challenged, examined, and re-examined for thousands of years. It never ceases to amaze me how someone can gain a following by claiming to have discovered something in the Bible that no one has ever seen before. Or that God has revealed something to him that he has withheld from the church for 2,000 years. That does not make sense. The Thessalonians had been taught firsthand by an apostle. So you'd think they would be immune to such deception. And he had obviously taught them the truth. And he had done so just a few months earlier, so you'd think they would have remembered what he said. But when life doesn't seem to match up with what you think you've been taught, it's very easy to begin questioning what you've been led to believe. And in the process of looking at things differently, it's easy to lose sight of what you actually have been taught. You begin wondering if you really heard it right or understood it correctly. You begin to doubt yourself, even if you don't start wondering about the one who taught you. Now, at this point, the Thessalonians weren't questioning the authority of the Apostle Paul. They just couldn't remember what he taught them. And when some began saying that they had received a message from a spirit, or remembered something Paul said, or had a letter that no one else had, they didn't know what to believe. And if the new teaching conflicted with what they did remember, they began doubting their memory of what Paul had actually taught. And they became vulnerable to faulty theology and outright deception. We too can become theologically confused if we don't remember what we've been taught. Assuming, of course, that what we've been taught is true. So how do we remember what we've been taught? I think we begin by confirming its truthfulness. Whenever we are taught something like the Bereans, we examine the Scriptures to see if it is so. 
And then, if what we are being taught is confirmed by the Word, we really don't have to remember who said it, how they said it, or even what it is exactly they did say. I don't care if you forget my sermons. I want you to take the teaching you get on Sunday morning, confirm it in the Word, and then remember the Word. Okay? That's how we remember. We confirm it in the Word. And then we go back to the Word to be reminded of the truth. We can refresh our memories by simply going back to our notes and reading the Scriptures again. Now, the Thessalonians didn't have that luxury. We've already noted the Scriptures had not yet been compiled. So Paul simply encouraged them to remember what they had been taught. Obviously, we have a big advantage over them. We can refresh our memories by opening God's Word. Theological confusion can pretty much be avoided if we'll just remember what we've been taught. And if we've confirmed the accuracy of what we've been taught by checking it out in Scripture, we will remember it. Bottom line, we can avoid being a confused church if we'll just stay in the Word. If we'll trust in its accuracy and obey what is clearly taught within its pages. May we commit ourselves again to trust and obey. Let's stand.